0: Okay, I think we're about ready to start here. You now, fellowship in the church is such a great thing, so I don't want to break it up too soon. Uh, yeah, Ken, uh, Ken and I got our signals crossed. I'm not preaching on estrogen in any way. Uh, you know what? The, the men on the retreat may be able to preach on estrogen, though. I've I've heard. I just heard this this morning when we were back having our prayer time, preparing for service. And evidently, they're up at Polly Mountain, which is a, a large camp up near Lake Arrowhead. And they're, they're up there, and the camp, of course, welcomes all kinds of different groups because it's a very large camp. And it turns out our men are up there with 600 Pentecostal women. So that's who they're, that's who they're sharing the camp with. So if anyone's getting in touch with, with their estrogen, it's the men who will... And maybe, maybe come home either speaking in tongues or more in touch with their feminine side or something. I don't know, but hopefully, I've heard they're having a great time, and it's a nice facility, and a great experience. So uh, they're up there, uh, and uh, but I'm glad so many of you are here and ready just to worship and and uh, to to learn from God's word, and it's a blessing for me to share. Uh, with you. Good to be back. We've been at a few different churches, my wife Lee and I, uh, for different reasons uh, needing to be. But uh, it's a blessing to be here today in what is our home church. And so uh, glad I can share from Acts 15 as we continue. This is an interesting passage for me to preach on because of what unfolds. As I've told you before, I spent my, uh, my really almost my entire career, 30-something years at Harbor Trinity Church just across town. Well, that church is there because of this church. Way back in the day, in the early 1950s, a group of people had a little disagreement with uh, what was happening here. And it wasn't a huge doctrinal thing to where. Uh, You know, it was just black and white in terms of right or wrong. It was just a disagreement. And so some of them, most of the people stayed here in the church, and they just continued on. Whatever view the pastor had was acceptable to them, and they continued on to do ministry and serve the Lord here. But this other group just wasn't having it, and so they went over and uh, they started Harbor Trinity Church. Now, I look back on that and think, well, God used disagreement for good. I mean, two churches now in this town sharing the truth of Scripture and talking about the love of God and sharing that with people, it provided a place for me to fulfill my call for so many years. So sometimes God can take disagreement and allow for it. The old saying, you know, we'll agree to disagree. We see that even in this chapter, and I don't have time to really focus on it. It's at the end of the chapter, but you have a kind of a famous moment of agree to disagree actually happens between the apostle paul and barnabas these two just godly pillars in the early church they've just gone on this missionary journey and they're getting back and now they're ready to go again but they can't agree am i getting some is that better they can't agree and specifically the issue is should john mark go with them on the next trip and paul says no Barnabas says yes, so they have to agree to disagree. Now, in a sense, God, you could say, uses it for good because now you have two missionary teams going out and sharing truth about Jesus. So maybe, again, God can work within that and uh, even in our differences still use us to do things for his kingdom. Sometimes that's okay. But sometimes we can't accept disagreement because it's just wrong. It just isn't truth. And we have to just make a stand and and decide this isn't acceptable. I'm going to try and keep this from... Is that... I'm still getting a little feedback. Bear with me, everyone. We may rely on one of our sound guys to come down and rescue this. But so I think I'm better now. Am I good? All right. Uh, we want the focus to be God's Word and and not my inability to put on a mic. So hopefully we're good now. There's a point sometimes where we have to just say... We can't allow for this because it's just not truth. And that's what happens in this passage we're going to look at. We're going to read chapter 15 of Acts today, and this is a famous turning point in church history. The gospel is at stake. The most important question you could ever ask, what does it take to be saved? What do I have to do to be forgiven by God? And to receive eternal life. What does it take? Today we're going to read what it takes. And we're going to see why it was so important that the leaders in the church answered this. And didn't let errant teaching change the gospel. The Christian faith as we know it. They wouldn't let the work of Christ on the cross be anything less than all sufficient. All we need. You don't need to add more to it. Christ alone is enough. But there's those pushing back, saying, well, that's not enough. I mean, that's good, but it's not enough. And so we have a huge debate, and this all-important question has to be addressed, and it is, and what is the now known famously as the Jerusalem Council. So with that as an introduction, let's look at chapter 15. Let's They're back from their missionary journey. They spent a while in Antioch, which is the sending church. It's in Syria. It's a ways north of Jerusalem, right on on the Mediterranean Sea, that town of Antioch. And now let's see what happens, beginning in verse 1, chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea. It says came down, even though it's a ways north from Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. It's elevated, so it describes it as coming down. Men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers: "Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved." And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation, or the, excuse me, the conversion of the Gentiles. And brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. among the gentiles let's pray heavenly father i pray that as we look closely at your scripture your truth we would apply it to our lives we would understand it and in our hearts there would be just such a gratitude and a knowledge and a conviction and joy that we are saved by faith according to your grace and love and mercy and the work of jesus on the cross Thank you, Lord, for this moment and how it is resolved. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I have in the title there, you see it in your outlines, His grace, our faith, and the first thing we read brings salvation. Here we have this amazing moment, the Jerusalem Council. What does it take to be saved, to be forgiven of sin, cleansed, to have our names written in the book of life? To be a child of God forever. What does it take? And we see the pushback happening in two places. First, it happens in Antioch. These individuals come up and they say, what a statement. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Talk about a legalistic requirement. And they, of course, base that on what happened at uh, Passover, and it was a powerful historic moment. I don't want to make light of it. It was turning point in history for the Jews. And it goes back to Exodus 12:48. Circumcision was required. And, and in that passage, it says, if there are those who are not Jewish, so they're Gentiles, and they want to gather and be a part of the Jews, and they want to celebrate Passover. And remember, Passover means passing over or when death passed over them and it represented being saved. because the spirit of death as it went through through the area of Egypt where the Jews were and, and, and all of that region, the spirit of death was, was taking the firstborn. But if you had on your doorpost, and you remember the story, if you had the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, death passed over you. And, and the requirement then in Exodus is if there's those who aren't Jewish, and they want to partake in this, they want death to pass over them, well, they need to be circumcised. So now, skipping all the way forward, these men are pointing back to that and saying if someone's going to be saved, if a man's going to be saved, even though, yes, you believe in Jesus, but also he must be circumcised. They're adding to the gospel this requirement. Now, you say, well, these people who are saying it, were, I mean, were they Christians or were they, were they just uh, still Jews, Pharisees, didn't believe in Jesus? Well, it honestly could have been both. In Galatians, it talks about them as Judaizers, and they're those who were considered false brethren. So there could have been some who were false. They, they really weren't even seeking the Lord. But there could have been others because at one point later it describes them as brothers. It could have been those who really meant well. They just needed to fully understand the work of Christ on the cross and how much he accomplished and, and, and what, it, uh, what it did for those who believe. So it, it could have been both, but either way, the teaching is not correct. And so Paul and Barnabas, they don't put up with it. They sharply dispute. They debate. They push back. His grace, our faith are enough for salvation, and they should know because they've just traveled over much of the Roman Empire telling people about Jesus. And God has confirmed it, because as Gentiles believed, God confirmed it with signs and with miracles and with wonders. As people believed in the Lord Jesus, there was no circumcision required. They weren't telling them to obey the law. And God was blessing their efforts and leading people To himself. And so they stand their ground. We're saved by faith alone in Jesus. Well, the debate continues to the point that the leaders in Antioch say, We need the official word on this, and it's not coming from us. You need to go to Jerusalem. You need to go to headquarters and see the apostles and the elders there. This needs to be settled. And we want the official word to come from those who are the leaders in the church. So they send them on this journey. And I just want to, before we get to the happenings in Jerusalem, I want us to appreciate something here. Because I think it's, it's sort of subtle, but we can take it to heart. And I think we've got to live it out. And it happens in verse 3. I already read it. But it says, as they pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they describe in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And what does it say? It brought great joy to all the brothers. I bet in some ways Paul and Barnabas were kind of tied up in knots because they're ready to go down to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles and elders and have a historic meeting about what does it take to be saved. And they're probably really angry at these brothers or possibly brothers or false brothers, who came from Jerusalem and said, essentially, you're not doing it right, Paul. Barnabas, you're not teaching the right thing. you got to teach people they have to be circumcised. They have to obey the law. I bet in a way Paul and Barnabas were kind of tied up in knots over this and not happy at all. And yet, as they're traveling to Jerusalem, they don't let that keep them from celebrating All that God has done. And so these Samaritans, who would be Gentiles, who were the outcast, who were not loved by Jews, are hearing this wonderful message of the gospel. And that Jesus died for them. And they're hearing about people coming to faith who, like them, are Gentiles. And there's great joy. And the point I want us to take to heart is... We're constantly waiting on something to get resolved. We're waiting on medical tests to come back. We're waiting on something to get figured out with a family member. We have kids or adult kids that are going through difficult things. There's always something yet to be figured out or worked out in God's timing. But please never let those unresolved things keep you from praising God every step of the way because there's always a reason to rejoice in our God. He's still saving people. He's still answering prayers. He's still doing a great work in our lives. And yeah, those things weigh pretty heavy sometimes because you're just waiting for an answer. But boy, let's just praise God every single day, every minute, every hour while we wait because that's what they do. They've got a huge, huge council coming up in Jerusalem, and they've got these people telling them they're not even preaching the gospel correctly or truth correctly, but they don't let that keep them from praising God every step of the way. And people are blessed because of it. So that's just kind of an aside I want us to take to heart. Well, they then, uh, while they praise each step of the way, they arrive in Jerusalem and the praising continues they're welcomed by the church apostles elders and they're declaring what god has done but then we see the pharisees now once again make an appearance just when you think you're done reading about pharisees you know all the times with jesus and they were always just making life so difficult on them and here they are again but these are, it says, are actually believers and um they uh, re-emphasize this idea that you have to circumcise, you have to keep the law of Moses. Well, Paul and Barnabas have done their part, and now it's Peter's turn. The man himself, the one who walked on water with Jesus, the one who was a part of Pentecost and saw thousands turn to the Lord, Jesus. Peter, the man himself, gets up to speak. And don't you love what he says? He reminds them that God made a choice to accept the Gentiles by faith because he was at the forefront of that. And that's back in chapter 10 of Acts when he gets that vision and he's sent to Cornelius' house, the Roman centurion. And Cornelius and all these Gentiles are there and they believe in Jesus through Peter's teaching. And what does God do to approve it and show it is true? He pours out, His spirit on the Gentiles. That shows approval. Remember in the Old Testament when they made the tabernacle and then the temple? How did God show approval? He poured out his his spirit and it filled the tabernacle. His spirit filled the temple. That's God's way of showing approval. And Peter is saying he did the same thing with Gentiles. They weren't circumcised. They weren't obeying the law. They just believed in Jesus and God poured out his spirit on them, filled them with the Holy Spirit. So Peter gives this testimony and then he says, you know, they're, they're saved just as we are. I mean, this is Peter, one of the inner circle of Jesus, one of the three, this great apostle and he's saying, I'm not saved any different than them. The same way for all of us. It's just faith in Jesus. And when we believe in his work, we are saved. Because God knows the heart. And God is the one who purifies the heart when we come to him by faith. And then he, Peter, in his in his speech here, he says, you know, don't place this yoke on the neck of them. That was a phrase they used, the Jews used, to describe when a gentile came to faith, they would take up the yoke. And they and, and so Peter is saying. Don't put that yoke on them. We couldn't even carry that yoke without failing. Why do you think they can do it? He says, don't put that yoke on them. And that yoke phrase, you're you're hearing that and you're thinking, wait, Jesus used that. He did. Remember, he said, take my yoke upon you. And that's what uh, Peter is saying here. Don't put the yoke of the law on them. It's his grace. It's our faith that brings salvation. It is true for us. It is true for the Gentiles, the Jews. It is true for everyone. And it has an impact because as I read verse 12, now uh, after Peter, uh, Barnabas and Paul speak some more and they share what God has done to the Gentiles. And it says everyone just falls silent, which implies even the Pharisees, who were uh, believers who were pushing back. They're even, they're even silent now because they're, they're hearing these stories. We are saved through his grace, by his grace and our faith. The work of Christ on the cross is enough. It brings salvation. And I love this idea that they kept giving God the glory, and each step of the way, all the way to Jerusalem, and when they were there, making the most of every opportunity. And just to share a, a quick story, I read this recently, but friends of ours, uh, Leo and Jody, they are uh, with Campus Crew. Well, they're with Crew. Used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ, and now it's just called Crew. Great organization, huge in my life. Uh, Lee, my wife, uh, back in the day when we were in college, huge for us and growing in our faith and following the Lord. And so they're, they're working with Crew, they're missionaries with them and they're in the inland empire and they told this this kind of nice praise story uh talking about making the most of you know opportunity while you wait they're setting up for their first meeting of the year and they're having it in one of the dorms a really really large dorm and they've got some kind of common room where they can have this christian outreach meeting but all of a sudden the fire alarm goes off and they're like oh so now the alarm's just blaring, and the entire dorm, hundreds of students, have to evacuate. Well, so much for the meeting, right? So now they're out in this courtyard area, and the RAs and other staff are yelling, stay further from the building, further from the building. Well, the, the leaders with crew were you know, there with everyone, hundreds. And, but they don't, there's no smoke or smell or fire or anything. So they think maybe it was just a drill. And then one of them gets an idea like, hey, where are all those flyers that we have for our meeting? And they're like, make the most of every opportunity. So with everyone gathered out there, they just start handing out flyers, inviting them to come to the meeting. In fact, some of the students, as they got them, actually suggested, did you pull the alarm just so you could have (laughs) this? Because they're all there in one place. It's like a dream for outreach. And they're like, no, we didn't pull the alarm. But they, they go they hand all the flyers, eventually everything's fine, they go back in, they have their meeting, and they said there was a young woman whose name was America. She was familiar with crew, the year before had kind of watched through social media, but had never gone. And this time she went. And she was interested, to the point that later that day or the next day she met with the leader and they shared the gospel with her, and she believed in the Lord Jesus. She came to faith in Christ. And it was just such a great story. In fact, the next week, she went back and invited a friend. And it's such a beautiful story of just, hey, this fire alarm wasn't part of the plan. But it's just a new opportunity to share the gospel, to reach out. And Paul and Barnabas, this whole moment wasn't part of the plan. They didn't expect to have to go to Jerusalem and deal with all this. But it's happening. So praise God along the way. Share your faith and give glory to God for all that he has done. So, point number one, bring salvation. Here's the next thing is God's grace, our faith. Point number two, rejects legalism. We must reject legalism, being under the law. Let me continue with the reading. I'm going to uh, pick up in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, there'll be more that follows. I'll cover it in the third point. But James makes it very clear, let's not trouble them with legalism. And he makes a few points as well in there. Even though Peter is giving his speech, Pretty much settled the issue. Paul and Barnabas have spoke on it. It's not until James stands up that it's official. And this James wasn't the James who you think of, James and John, with Jesus. This James was the half-brother of Jesus. When he was younger, he wasn't a believer, but in time he came to believe in the Lord Jesus. And uh, he is now the head of the Jerusalem church. He's basically the head of the church at this point. And he also wrote the book of James. You think of that. And so this uh, individual who would have had really as much or more understanding of Jesus than anyone because Jesus was the oldest, right? So from the time James was born into the home, he was around Jesus, his older brother, and would had have a lifetime of growing up uh, seeing Jesus. So he is, he is the, the head of the church, and he makes this big statement to reject legalism first he gives credit to Peter he uses his Jewish name and Jewish spelling Simeon maybe to kind of win over some of the Jews and he talks about how God first visited he's sort of saying we really shouldn't even have to have this conversation because God already revealed this was his plan to reach the Gentiles by faith alone so he acknowledges that and gives credit to it but then he goes one step further and he says not only that The Scripture says God is going to reach Gentiles for his name. And he gives an example. This quote is from the book of Amos. And he brings up how uh, God said ahead of time that Gentiles would come to him. He says words of the prophets, but he just quotes one of them in, in Amos. And then he says, we can't make it difficult Don't make them obey the law that the Jews couldn't anyway. So the words of the prophets say that the Gentiles should be welcomed by faith. Experience and what God is doing say the same thing. We need to make it official. And it it was so important that this statement was made. And to back it up, he says, we're going to put it in writing. And so they go on and they write out a letter that confirms that they are not required to be under the law. Legalism must be rejected. But it's interesting, folks, because as a church, we've struggled with this for a lot of years. It's better now. It's better now. But we had a lot of years throughout church history where legalism was a real problem. And there were so many requirements. I read one kind of funny story. Charles Wendall told this story of Years ago, a youth pastor wanted to show a film of missionaries. So he showed it to the youth group. And about an hour after he showed it, it was an old conservative church with Scandinavian roots, I guess. And as soon, as, soon after the movie was done, the leaders hear of it, and they actually call him into the, an office for a meeting, the youth pastor. And they say, "We well, heard you showed a motion picture to the students. He was like, well, well, yeah, but it was a missionary's. And he said, the last time we had missionaries here, they had, they showed slides and one of the elders stops and said, uh, slides are still. If it moves, it's sin. Where's <laughs> a day where you didn't go to motion pictures, right? Sometimes the, the legalism that we put out there is not of the Lord. <laughs> and this is a case where they're saying, now we're saved by faith alone. We can't put these requirements out there as essential if you're going to be saved. And the church has come a long way, and I think that is wonderful. And then when we welcome people into church, all different dress styles. You know, when I started in ministry, I wouldn't even consider standing up here without a tie and a suit on when I preach. I think just to wear that made me dress up a little more than normal today. I don't know, maybe it got in my head. But so much has changed over the years, and now you can come to church in shorts and a t-shirt, or you can dress up. The point is you're here worshiping the Lord and finding truth about our God and Savior. So we must reject legalism. But now we need to go on to the third point, and this is important, because even though we're saved by grace through faith, it doesn't mean that once we're saved, God doesn't have expectations of us. Of course he does. And it's pointed out right here. And what I'm going to read is a little weird and complicated, but it's truth and we can learn from it. So let's continue on. After he says we shouldn't pile it on and make it difficult, beginning in verse 20, he says, Don't trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, end of 19, but verse 20, But should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, And from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And and to clarify that, uh, those verses, when it's put in writing, skip down to verse 28. This is how it's said again in the letter. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. The third point is this. His grace, our faith, pursues holiness. Yes, we are free in Christ, but we are not free to sin. Yes, we reject legalism, but we still pursue holiness. And God has ways, a whole New Testament, listing all the ways that we are to follow him and serve him. And here's just a few. When we accept Christ, we know Christ was holy and perfect and without sin. And when we believe in Christ, we take on a new name, the word Christ, and we add an I, an A, and an N, Christian. And and when I take on that, I'm saying, I want my life to be conformed into the image of Christ. I want to turn from the ways of the world, and I want to follow my Lord. I don't do that so that I can be saved. I do that because I'm saved. Because he died for me. He gave his life for me. And I don't want to corrupt my own life. I don't want to pollute my life. I want to follow him. I want him to be glorified in my life. And so this pursuit, and, and God will carry on a completion what he began in this. This pursuit of our lives isn't to be saved. It's because we're saved. And we want to live for our Lord. And so they give a little example of that here and just these initial things that are pointed out. Why these four things? Well, evidently, for the Christians living at this point in history, in this place in the world, these were huge things that would pull them from Christ and harm their growth in him and their fellowship with their Jewish-believing brothers and sisters. These were huge issues that they needed to change as they're now following Christ. And just to take a little closer look at them, uh, the first one talks about uh, meat and offered to things polluted by idols. And we read in the second time where it brings that up again, it's sacrificed to idols. The The short explanation of that is that in these pagan religions, these pagan temples, people would bring animals to be sacrificed as an offering. The meat would then be sold in the marketplace. And they're saying that if you go purchase that meat from the the pagan priest who slaughtered it, you're supporting that pagan temple and idol. And you shouldn't do it. It will break fellowship with your Jewish brothers and sisters. Even though that doesn't exist today, I think if it did, we would apply this specifically if there was a butcher here in town that was very clearly a pagan idol with pagan gods and I knew all of their money went to supporting this pagan beliefs and values and you said to me yeah but the, the hamburger's on sale it's, it's a good price you know I, I wouldn't no and I'm pretty frugal but no I'm, I'm not going to go buy it there I just would choose not to do that right for obvious reasons and so that's kind of the idea here in terms of having or purchasing this this meat Uh, it would be sort of connecting you to idol worship the second thing it talks about is sexual immorality Uh, in the pagan temples often there was prostitution men and women And part of going into those temples and and sort of worshiping or serving that pagan idol or God was to partake in sexual immorality with with prostitutes. And so they're saying, again, no, this is not something you should do. You know, God blesses and ordains marriage uh, to be a place of expression your sexuality and having that, not uh, sexual immorality in a temple. That's not fitting for someone who follows the Lord Jesus. And so it speaks against that as well. And then it brings up two more things that are, uh, it says uh, not to drink blood or to eat what has been strangled. And it kind of goes together because if an animal was strangled, evidently it was some kind of a pagan way of killing and offering animals. And if it was strangled, the blood's still in it. It's not bleeding out and, and and when an animal is normally butchered, so the blood's still in it because it's strangled, and it's saying, "Don't partake of that, and as best we understand, it goes back to the pagan practices of the day, and it would so show, as- show an association with that, but there's a little more that to explain that that's kind of subtle and interesting in 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 Genesis. Uh, chapter 9, 4, it talks about not drinking blood. So, the, so, so scholars would argue this predates the law. This is anywhere that Moses is read, and Moses wrote the book of Genesis, people know this is wrong to do. So this is not only hurting your fellowship with Jews, but it's just wrong in God's eyes. And here's why in terms of the, the pagan beliefs. And the scripture even teaches, the life is in the blood. The pagan believed that if you killed your enemy and you drank some of your enemy's blood, you gained their life force, their life strength, because life is in the blood. So if I drink some of their blood, what they had now is mine. And if this was so entrenched in pagan thinking, People would be tempted if they had even an animal. Is the life in the blood, this animal? If I drink the blood, there's something happening here. And they're so entrenched in that thinking, they're saying, don't do it. Why? The only blood you need is the blood of Jesus Christ. Because he died on the cross for your sins. He shed his blood for you. And what did Jesus say when he gathered us for communion? This is my, my body. This is my blood. Christ is all you need. So don't have anything to do with blood of animals or anything like that. Any pagan associations. No. Don't do that. You only need Jesus. He's enough. His death on the cross, he defeated death. He rose on the... Jesus is enough. And so that's why they're pointing these things out, saying don't have anything to do with these. You're saved by faith in Jesus. Stay away from these. And so they put it in writing, they send it back to Antioch and, and it says in, in verse 31, the chapter continues in uh, verse 31, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Everyone is affirmed, everyone is built up because they are reading officially from headquarters, the church in Jerusalem, faith in Jesus is enough. I want to close with just a few application thoughts that I think are important from this. Yes, as I said, we're saved by faith in Jesus. But hear this. A saved person is not a selfish person. A saved person is not a selfish person. And much of these requirements, we're saying... Yeah, you're free in Christ, and yeah, technically all food's clean, but there's pagan associations with your lifestyle. You need to step away from those things. It will hurt your fellowship with others in the Jewish community. And there is a point where Paul later says if he finds out some meat was sacrificed to an idol, it doesn't really matter in the sense that it's just meat. And it doesn't mean anything to him, but they're, they're saying it means something to your Jewish brothers. So even Paul says, I'll never eat meat again if it came down to hurting my fellowship with others. A saved person is not a selfish person. And we make decisions that bless others and help keep unity. And it was so important for these Gentiles to be around their Jewish brothers and sisters because they knew the scripture and they knew Jesus and so they're giving them these requirements. A friend of ours, uh, years ago, went on a short missions trip. It was my, my friend's uh, daughter. And it was in uh, Istanbul is where she went with her husband and, and their kids. Well, she uh, she grew up around here, and she had a tattoo on her foot. And uh, it was nothing, uh, you know, offensive or anything. It's just something she had, you know. But she found out that... In Istanbul, in that part of the world, that Muslim community where they'd be reaching, that tattoo would be offensive. And that could hurt her witness. Well, as I've said, a saved person is not a selfish person. Her heart is to be a witness. So she went through the very expensive and painful process of having it removed. Not because ultimately maybe it's right or wrong, just it was her heart to bless and reach others. And Romans 14, 21 says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that causes your brother to stumble. So that's something we need to take to heart, and that's what they want them to take to heart. There's something else I want us to to consider. A saved person is a compassionate person. In this letter that they write, on three different occasions, it shows compassion for the Gentiles. calls them brothers. It says it's concerned they're troubled, it says they've been unsettled. Everything in their language is, we have compassion on these new believers and want to be sensitive to where they're at. And then the third thing I want us to understand is, a saved person has the Holy Spirit. Peter says it in verse eight, he says, "God gave them the Holy Spirit." And in verse 28, You notice in the letter it said, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you. We have the Holy Spirit filling us and guiding us when we believe. If you're ever in a place where you're like, Lord, I don't know if I should do this or not. Is this like, you know, meat sacrificed to idols? Am I in some kind of place here? And what should I do, Lord? the Holy Spirit will lead you if you ask. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us each step of the way. And the Spirit has an amazing way of convicting and guiding if we will just open our hearts and yield to Him. When I got home, one year, my first year of college, I went up to Humboldt State and uh, met a bunch of guys there and had good friendships with them. But they weren't, following the Lord they didn't really value that and I took on their way of talking and um, I had become a Christian as a junior in high school and so that was impacting how I lived but I go up to Humboldt State and I mean I just didn't even realize how quickly I started speaking differently and like the words out of my mouth think of cr- curse words cuss words they just flowed so easily. Well, I get back home, and I'm with the friend who led me to Christ, the one who invited me to youth group, and I became a Christian. And I'm actually – I had a little red pickup truck, and I'm driving. I don't know. something I almost hit or whatever, and the words are just going. And all he had to say was, what's with your language? And it was like then the Spirit just convicted me, like, what has happened? If we're in doubt about what Christ wants of us, just ask the Spirit to lead, because we have the Spirit. And he will guide, he will direct, he will shape, always in this direction of conforming us into the image of Christ. And that's why they give these requirements here to these believers. You're saved by faith. There's nothing else you need to do to be a Christian other than believe in Jesus, confess your sins. He has done it all. But now that you're a Christian, let the Spirit lead you and change you. I'll end with this. What does your pursuit of holiness look like? How might God be leading you in your walk with him to take steps to turn away from the things of this world and to follow Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture And Lord, I pray you'd give us discernment. I pray that we can live in this beautiful, wonderful place of knowing we're saved by faith. And it doesn't take works. It doesn't take obedience to the law. You love us. You've forgiven us. And we are your children when we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But from that place, redeemed, forgiven, free, Filled with the Spirit from that place, Lord. Guide our steps, our words, our thoughts. Let us give glory to you. Let us obey you. Let us just be lights in this dark world. Turning from those things that just want to pull us down. Pull us into worldly ways. It never satisfies, Lord. It never leaves us in a place we want to be. I pray we could turn from those things. And by faith and obedience, follow you. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your goodness. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. that message thank you that was really good i learned a lot today thank you may the lord bless you and keep you may he make his face shine upon you lighthouse church have a great week and we'll see you back here next time god bless you